One Nation Under Pod. Hello, this is Jamie Lynn Crofts, and welcome back to Civil Fights. In the new year, we're going to try to be a little more regular with our episodes, so please keep an eye out. Today, I am here with the ACLU of West Virginia's policy director, Eli Bomwell. He's going to give us a little preview of some of the things we're going to see in West Virginia's legislative session this year, which is something I'm always terrified for. (laughs) And I'm always a mix of terrified and excited. It's a fun time. So, Eli, what do we have to look forward to in the next couple of months? Well, the next two months is going to be pretty busy for the ACLU of West Virginia, I I expect. Um, We are introducing a number of pieces of legislation ourselves, and we're also anticipating some major fights on a number of key issues um, that we keep close track of. So what are some of the broad topics we're going to see before we get into the nitty-gritty? Well, we're going to see a lot done on criminal justice reform. In West Virginia, we've been dealing with a crisis in correctional officers. We don't have enough. We've got too high of a prison population. They're leaving. They're inexperienced, and it's causing problems. So there's already a lot of efforts underway to reform criminal justice. We're going to be trying to spearhead some of those ourselves. Um, We're probably going to see attacks on both LBGT issues as well as attacks on reproductive rights and reproductive justice. So we can expect some big fights there. Uh, Those are always great. It seems like we, we see more and more of those every year, unfortunately. Excuse me. We'll probably also see things attacking public benefits, uh, particularly digging into due process issues and privacy issues when we look at that. Are they going to try to drug test more people again? It's a possibility. It's something that we've been hearing about. Oh, goody. Yep, it'll be interesting. So let's dig in a little bit deeper. Uh, you mentioned LGBT rights and... I know in the last couple of years we've seen RIFRA introduced and debated on, but we've also seen non-discrimination protections be introduced uh, by a bipartisan group of people. What do you think is coming for us in 2018 as far as LGBT rights? The rumors circulating in the Capitol hallways have have brought up four potential pieces of legislation that we might see. Uh, One thing we're looking at is what's called a Pasture Protection Act. This can be something that's very simple, just a symbolic bill for, for people who want to say that they're interested in religious freedom. And it can really just say that pastors don't ha- aren't forced to marry um, people that they don't agree with, which is already the law. Right. I was going to say, Eli, isn't that what the First Amendment dictates already? Absolutely. And in fact, if we ever had a situation where a pastor was being forced to marry someone that they didn't want to, we would probably be the first ones defending them. Um, Unfortunately, we have seen that in other states, sometimes these get amended later on in the legislative process and expanded to include uh, people like state employees. So it would be essentially what happened with Kim Davis. Um, They'd be exempted. The Kim Davis Protection Act? Exactly. Uh. Um, So we've got to keep a close eye on something like that if it gets introduced. Uh, Definitely. Um, Another thing that we could be looking at is uh, what we call an Abolishing Local Liberties Act. That's um, a sneaky way to undermine these non-discrimination ordinances that we've seen passing throughout the state by essentially saying that municipalities can't pass these ordinances and any of the ordinances that have been passed are void. That sounds strikingly similar to a United States Supreme Court case from the 1990s out of Colorado. 
Well, you're a legal director. Maybe you can tell us about it. <laughs> so in the 90s, Colorado passed a law that banned cities from being able to enact their own non-discrimination ordinances. This went up to the Supreme Court. This was well before um, DOMA or bans on same-sex marriage were held unconstitutional. Uh, the court in the 90s actually held that Colorado's law was unconstitutional. Um, so I would just like to remind anyone listening that that exists. <laughs> Well, and hopefully the legislature will take that under advisement. It would certainly make my job a little bit easier. <laughs> um, we also may be looking at another RIFRA. Um, oh. Yep. Um, now, personally, and based on what I've been hearing, I think that's a little bit less likely, only because that was such a fight before and it wasn't able to pass before. Um, but we are gearing up to be prepared to fight that battle again if we have to. Great. That was really fun and not at all terrible the last time around. Well, gear up because the one we're probably going to see is going to be just as bad. Um, the one we're probably anticipating seeing is the bathroom predator myth bill, sometimes called the transgender bathroom bill. <sighs> yep, so it, it's as bad as that. Um, and for people who aren't familiar, this essentially says that people have to use the bathrooms that align with their uh, given sex at birth. Um, so, like, do I have to start carrying my birth certificate around with me, or what's the deal? Well, we're not entirely sure how something like this would actually be enforced. This sounds familiar. Didn't we see something similar come out of North Carolina recently? We did, and it caused them a whole world of headache and trouble and economic loss. Things that we are hoping that our West Virginia legislators are keeping in mind as they even potentially consider something like this. Good. Yeah. Not good. <laughs> Not, not good, and unfortunately it gets even worse from there, at least in our defensive work. Oh, what else is on the plate? Well, like I said, we'll be looking potentially at some reproductive rights issues. Um, notably, we're looking at Medicaid funding for abortion. West Virginia is one of the few states that still allows Medicaid funding for abortion. Why is West Virginia one of those states? I wouldn't think that would be the truth. Well, West Virginia had a Supreme Court case that examined this issue, this exact issue, and the court said that the equal protections in the West Virginia Constitution are greater than the equal protections in the U.S. Constitution, and that if Medicaid can cover things like birth, then it has to cover the essentially the opposite end of that spectrum, which is abortion. That makes logical sense. Makes logical sense and makes legal sense. Yep. And to our listeners, I was just kidding. Uh, I obviously knew that case. It is Pana Pinto versus Women's Health Center of West Virginia. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's, it's a good case. It's good case law. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is because this is under the West Virginia Constitution, one of the things that's really been brought up is a constitutional amendment. A constitutional amendment. So they want to write discrimination against poor women into West Virginia state constitution. Is that what you're telling me? That's exactly what I'm telling you. Well, you know, it, it's almost as much fun for me when the West Virginia legislature talks about reproductive rights as it is when they talk about LGBT rights. And I'm wondering if my body will be compared to any kitchen appliances this year. It's been known to happen in the past. <laughs> no, this, this would be a really bad fight. And unfortunately, this is really being driven very cynically, too. This isn't even about abortion. Um, certainly, it doesn't do anything to change abortion, um, other than make it harder for poor women to get that. To do, pass a constitutional amendment in the state of West Virginia, for those who aren't familiar, you need two-thirds majorities um, in both chambers, so two-thirds majority in both the Senate and the House, 
and then it has to pass in a popular referendum, which means that it would wind up on a, as a ballot initiative. And the most likely time that would be would be the November midterm elections. Now, a lot of Republicans are afraid that they're going to see some big hits um, this November based on some of the previous elections we've seen throughout the country. And they see this primarily as a way to drive up turnout for their base. All right, I'm going to get up on my soapbox for a minute here because generally abortion restrictions do affect poor women and working class women more than rich women. Uh, because if a woman who is well off needs or wants to have an abortion, she can probably afford to travel for it, uh, whether that be out of state or out of the country. Um, and so these restrictions that we see at the state levels already overwhelmingly impact poor and working class families. But in this situation, they're actually specifically targeting poor women. Um, and this would literally write discrimination against poor women into the West Virginia Constitution, which is just unconscionable. And I would also like to remind everyone that before Roe versus Wade, women died because they tried to have abortions. Women died because abortion was illegal. Making abortion illegal or harder to access does not reduce the demand for abortion. It just makes it unsafe and results in women dying. So not only does this bill specifically target poor women, it would likely result in deaths in the state of West Virginia. Interesting fact. Do you know what the uh, highest trending Google search in Texas was after the law was passed that... Um, that was overturned by Whole Woman's, Whole Woman's Health. No. It was how to perform at-home abortions. Oh. It was the biggest increase in searches at, in Texas after that. Wow. The highest trending. Wow. Yep. And so, again, this is something we're looking at now. Well, we are watching the partisan politics behind this. I'd like to take a moment to remind people that we are a nonpartisan organization. Um, however, we find it particularly offensive when people go after core constitutional rights purely for political gain. Word. So those are some of the, the, the bad things that we're looking at. Um, there are a number of other things that we may see coming down the pike as far as bad bills go. Uh, we may be looking at drug testing for benefits that um, include either SNAP or and or Medicaid. What, what's SNAP for our listeners? SNAP is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as food stamps. Ah. Yep. So this would essentially uh, say that people would have to take a drug test for SNAP. Now, um, as we brought up when we fought the um, drug testing for welfare, which is actually the TANF program, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program, the incidence of drug use um, that they find when they do these sort of uh, testing is minuscule. And pretty much every state that's ever tried this has spent more money drug testing people um, than they have not paying benefits to any individual. Um, and I'd also remind people that the underlying assumption here is that we have deemed certain behaviors to be so bad that we don't want people to eat. Yeah. Uh, seems particularly cruel to me. And also just kind of not forward thinking, um, particularly when you consider the fact that 
you know, at the state level, we still criminalize marijuana where other states are legalizing it and legalization gets, you know, pulls huge both in West Virginia and nationwide. Oh, absolutely. And of course, we could get into other issues like the lack of treatment in West Virginia. So we have a number of people who are simply on waiting lists trying to, to get into treatment centers. Um, we have people who may recreationally use drugs but hold down full-time jobs and be working professionals. Um, but these may also be jobs that, frankly, just don't pay a whole lot. And the idea that we would cut that off for a behavior that, that is part of their own choice, it's part of their own bodily autonomy, um, it shows a complete lack of compassion, a complete lack of understanding into the factors that, that underlie um, drug abuse disorders. Is there anything else we're looking at from the defensive here? Well, how deep do you want to go? <laughs> oh, no. Um, th there are a number of other things that we'll be keeping an eye on that we may see coming down the, um, down the road. Um, we're continuing to watch privatization of education. Um, that's something we were watching very closely last year. Um, we know that that's a priority for this particular legislature. So, like school vouchers? School vouchers, charter schools, could be education tax credits. Um, they don't seem to be set on any particular model. Um, but all of them bring up constitutional concerns for a number of reasons. Right. Aren't, um, aren't a lot of private and charter schools allowed to discriminate against, for example, LGBT students or students with disabilities? They're allowed to discriminate. They also, um, these programs tend to heavily favor parochial schools, um, which winds up being the government then funding um, religious education. Right. And I, I seem to recall our dear Secretary of Education um, advocating for schools to be able to discriminate against students with LGBT parents for uh, religious reasons. A whole host of forms of discrimination that could come up, particularly when you have these essentially private schools that are then getting state money um, and are not subject to all the protections that public schools are. All right. What else we got? Well, we keep hearing rumors that we might see a running over protesters bill. Hopefully something that wouldn't move, but, but gosh, I, I hope no one is foolish enough to put something like that into into the hopper. Are we going to see a Bible as the state book again? We might see Bible as the state book again. <laughs> Always fun. Um, we might see a Blue Lives Matter, too. We're watching that. Um, what's, what's Blue Lives Matter for our listeners who don't know? Blue Lives Matter is essentially making it a hate crime to a kill or, in a lot of cases, assault a police officer. And usually these laws are defined so broadly that assault can include things like resisting arrest, which um, for those of us who, are, who follow civil liberties know that virtually any situation in which there's anything even remotely um, resembling a struggle, including someone who's in pain and just writhing, um, can be construed as assaulting an officer at this point. Right. I mean, I feel like I've seen that a lot, and it, it often goes along with other vague things like uh, obstruction of justice or, uh, you know, things like that. Interfering with government processes. <laughs> Shout out to Dan Hyman. There we go. Um, yeah, so we may, we may see a number of things like that. Um, we'll also probably be watching more criminalization of drug activity, um, even as we recognize this correctional officer um, crisis. There are still people who think we need to find more criminal penalties for um, drug users. All right. Well, that was depressing. Um, but is there anything good that we can look forward to? There is. There's a lot of good that we can look forward to. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about our proactive agenda. We've got a very uh, aggressive proactive agenda this session. Um, the biggest thing, the one that we are most excited about, is bail reform. Yes. 
Um, so we're looking at borrowing a model from New Jersey. Shout out to the Garden State. Woohoo! Um, Hi, Joanna. <laughs> so New Jersey, New Jersey has a bail model um, that requires magistrates to essentially use a rubric, um, a risk assessment ru rubric. It's evidence based. Um, to determine whether or not someone has a risk of either fleeing, not showing up to court, or reoffending while they're while they're out awaiting trial, and people who are low and even low moderate risk of this are released on their own recognizance. That means no cash bail. That sounds awesome. Absolutely, it's awesome. It's more fair. It's what bail is essentially set to do: is to keep make sure people show up to court, and if they're already going to do it. Why do they have to pay money? Right, because isn't it a basic tenet of our entire criminal justice system that in the United States you're innocent until proven guilty? That's what they keep saying. That's what I thought. Yep. Um, so this is this is what we're borrowing. This is what we're looking at doing. Something very similar to that. Now it'll still allow magistrates some flexibility. They could set bail where there's more risk of either reoffense or um, or not showing up. But the law is going to make it very clear that they have to set the minimum amount necessary to assure appearance. That means that someone who steals $50 of food should not be given a $20,000 cash bail. Which recently happened in Huntington. Yes, it did. Um, and it does allow magistrates, even if they, they go through the rubric, um, to rule against it. But then they're going to have to provide written findings of fact and law that can be appealed. Um, so that we've got a, a full due process system here to protect people. That sounds great. Do you think it has any chance of moving? I do, actually. I know that there's some leadership in the House who've expressed some interest in this. I know that this is an issue that other members, particularly in the House, have been looking at. Um, so I, I think the momentum's there for that, and I think there are a lot of people who recognize that one of the huge ways that we could help with this correctional officer crisis is to not hold people in jail who haven't even been convicted of a crime or just waiting for their trial. Yep. Absolutely. So this is going to hopefully help, and, I, and again, I think that we will see some movement there. Um, another big thing that we're looking forward to is going after the civil asset forfeiture process. Can you explain civil asset forfeiture and what that means? Long story short, uh, civil asset forfeiture is legal theft by police. Oh, that that's wonderful. Absolutely. Um, in a little bit more detail, what it means is that if you are stopped by police and they um, suspect you of a crime, they can seize any property that they think is related to the crime. Now that could be cash that you have on your body. It could be cash that someone else in a vehicle with you has on their person. It could be backpacks, it could be a vehicle. Um, so it can be a, a whole wide array of property that the police can then seize and hold on to while this um, while process is going. Now the really interesting thing about this is that they don't ever have to even charge you with a crime. You don't have to be convicted. What? Yep. They can take it because they suspect it as being related to the crime and then not charge you with the crime. How is that allowed? Well, Jamie, you can probably get more <laughs> to criminal procedure in terms of um, how you go from an initial arrest down to an indictment. Um, but because police are the ones in that fr on the front lines, the ones doing this, they can seize that property. Um, and then, then it, down the line it can be determined that there's no reason to press charges. Well, that's just nuts, um, but what, what are we looking at to try to reform that? So what we're looking at is actually working with, um, with Americans for Prosperity. Um, <laughs> and for anyone who doesn't know, Americans for Prosperity um, is, an, is an outgrowth of the Koch Brother Network. Um, but they're also very big um, advocates of reforming the civil asset pro um, forfeiture process. And what we're proposing is legislation that would require a conviction 
before property could be forfeited. And that's the other part of the civil asset forfeiture process is that once police take it, they can then file a motion in court to keep your property. And under current law, what happens is you then have to respond. You've got to get a lawyer and respond in court to try to go back and prove that you can get your property back. Understandably, for a lot of people, the property that was taken isn't worth the cost of the lawyer. They're afraid to go into court. So police wind up keeping that property, and then they get to keep a portion of the proceeds. So under the law that we're proposing, what would happen is you would have to have a conviction. If there isn't a conviction, then the property automatically goes back to the, the property owner. And if there's a conviction, as part of that process, after a um, person has been convicted, they will make a finding as to whether or not any seized property can be forfeited. It sounds to me like the current system almost encourages corruption. Absolutely. It creates a perverse incentive for police to go out looking for people that they can take cash from. Yeah. Which we've heard about happening. Um, so that's that's something we're really excited about. And again, we think that we've got some, some possibility to move it there. I know it's something that a number of legislators have been looking at in years past. Well, I'm excited to hear that we're at least looking at trying to change that. Absolutely. Um, another big thing that we're looking at is taking a step to, to address the drug house ordinances, or as I'm calling a mandatory eviction ordinances. Mm -hmm. um, to give any, everyone a quick rundown of that, these are ordinances that municipalities have been passing um, that essentially say if police get called to the same property, usually the, the triggering number of times is twice in a, in a one year period. Even if, again, if there's never an arrest, if there's never any conviction um, or finding that even there was criminal activity, as long as there's a suspicion of criminal activity based on the, these calls, um, they can then force landlords to evict the tenants, to potentially screen future tenants and refuse to rent to people with certain criminal backgrounds, even if they've already fully served their sentences, as well as a number of other things against both the tenants and the landlords. Wow. Um, yeah, and I know that we've seen those, you know, popping up kind of all around the state, like as far away as the Eastern Panhandle and as close to us here in Charleston as South Charleston. Absolutely. So they've been cropping up all over the place. And what, what we're looking at is a state law that says that municipalities cannot pass ordinances. They're going to punish people for a genuine call for emergency services. Right. It seems to me that we should never really be discouraging people from calling 911 in an emergency. Absolutely. And we also don't want um, survivors of domestic abuse to feel like they can't call police to get involved when they're in an abuse situation uh, because they're afraid of losing their home. Right. Um, so this is something that we're also looking at doing, uh, making some progress there. Another thing that we're looking at doing is a privacy bill, and this follows after our legislative success in 2016 on the Take Control Initiative, um, which is really about electronic privacy. Um, so the, the bill we passed in 2016 prohibits employers from firing or punishing employees who don't turn over passwords to personal electronic devices um, that is owned by the employee, not owned by the company, or to personal social media accounts. What we want to do this year is expand, expand that to students and make sure that students in schools can't be punished, expelled, or anything else for not turning over passwords for, again, their own cell phones, their own tablets, their own electronic devices, or their own social media accounts. Um, now, because we're talking about the school school um, situation, there are some exceptions in there when schools are investigating a specific incident and they feel like they need access to, to some of that information to investigate a serious incident. Uh, but again, those are very narrowly drawn um, and go through a number of process 
protections for the students. Right, because public school students are protected by the Fourth Amendment, which prohibits unreasonable search and seizure. But because of the unique situation, particularly that primary and elementary schools provide, um, it that line of case law is very different from just general Fourth Amendment search and seizure case law. Exactly. Um, and then there are some things that we're, we're going to be looking at um, supporting that aren't going to be introduced by us. So I'll just briefly run down that list. Sounds good. Um, we're probably going to see a um, bill called Death with Dignity, which is going to be about assisted suicide, allowing people at the end of life to make the determination for what's best for them. Mm -hmm. um, and conversely, but using the same logic, we might see a bill that is going to close some loopholes that doctors can currently use to contradict end-of-life orders for people who want to be kept alive, um, even with extreme measures. Oh, that's kind of cool. Bodily autonomy, whether you want to be kept alive or not. Exactly. Um, so we're going to be really on both ends of that spectrum dealing with end-of-life bills probably this session. Um, we're also likely to see a uh, conversion therapy ban um, that we think may, may pass this year. Wow, that would be pretty cool. That would be very cool. And we'll also be looking at an Equal Pay Act. We'll have to see what happens there. But this would be something to make sure that employers can't pay men and women doing the same jobs or essentially the same jobs differently. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> Absolutely. Very good one. Um, now, that's just a, a small sampling of the probably 500 or more bills that we'll be following this se session. But those are some of the biggest things on our agenda as we uh, head into it. Awesome. Well, thanks for sitting down and talking to me about this today. Will you be uh, doing video updates like you gave us last year? There will be video updates. Um, we are going to aim to have them out weekly, probably Wednesday afternoons. Um, for those who followed uh, West Virginia's legislative session before, you know things can get a little bit hairy, especially towards the end. So we'll see We'll see how regular that schedule keeps as, as things progress. Um, and how long is West Virginia's legislative session? We have a 60-day session, which is a short period of time to cram a lot in. Yeah, that's a, a long sprint. <laughs> it is. It's a good way to put it. Um, and Eli uh, also has a Twitter that he uses uh, to keep people updated about our issues. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? It's Eli at, at ACLUWV. No, so it would be at, at Eli. At Eli ACLUWV. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thanks for tuning in. And uh, I will try to get back to you with regular updates on session. Uh, but also just keep an eye out for Eli's videos because he knows a lot more about what's going on behind the scenes than I do. Sometimes. <laughs>